You are listening to the How to Talk to Girls podcast with me, Trip Kramer. Hello, and welcome back to another episode of the How to Talk to Girls podcast. I'm your host, Trip Kramer from tripadvice.com. On today's episode, we are talking to Dr. Kristen Mark, who has a PhD in health behavior and a concentration in human sexuality from the Kinsey Institute, the place where you learn about all things with data and research regarding sex. And I am so excited. Well, I was excited because the interview has already been done of the interview that I did with Dr. Kristen. And it's a very interesting one because as you know, since you have read the title, we're talking about female sexual desire, but more from a scientific standpoint. So there are no just general opinions here, but we're really talking about it from a data standpoint. And that's what makes it so fascinating and so interesting. And also Kristen is very well-spoken. So she is very fun and interesting to listen to and has a lot of great things to say on the topic of female sexual desire. And we go off and talk about some other topics and go on some tangents, which are also related, but still very interesting. I think you're going to have a great time listening to this and learning a lot in terms of understanding females and their desire. And just the double whammy here is we get to talk to an actual female on this. So she has some things to say. Of course, she is living the human female experience and can speak to it very well, obviously. So why don't we just hop into it right now? Here is my interview with Dr. Kristen Mark. Enjoy. I'm here with Dr. Kristen Mark. How's it going, Kristen? How are you doing? Good. How are you? I'm very good. I'm, I'm glad to have you here on the podcast and talking about sexual desire. And it's really always an honor to talk to someone who's who's a doctor, who's in the field, who's done a lot of research. And I like to hear about that research. So having you on the podcast is a learning experience as much for me as it is for any of the guys who are listening. And I think it'll be an interesting conversation. So I'm glad to have you here. Why don't you tell the guys who are listening who you are, what your background is, a little bit about yourself? Yeah, happy to be here. So my PhD is in health behavior from the Kinsey Institute from Indiana University, the Kinsey Institute, and then the Center for Sexual Health Promotion, which is kind of a school, oddly, where sort of sex research as a field was born because of the Kinsey Institute. So now I am at University of Minnesota Medical School. I am the director of education there and in our program in human sexuality. And I'm the Joycelyn Elders Endowed Chair for Sexual Health Education. So. I run a lot of different graduate programs and our medical school curriculum and do my research in the area of sex and relationships. We also have a clinic where we see patients for sex and couples therapy. We also have a gender spectrum clinic too. So we do a lot of different work in the area of sexual health. My research, I've been sort of in this field for well, a long time now. And my research overall contributes to just like, how can we make our sex lives healthier? So how can we find a way to make sure that like things like sexual desire are maintained in long-term relationships? How do we navigate when one of us wants more sex or less sex than our partner? How do we maintain satisfaction in those long-term relationships? 
And then I've done some work in the area of like how people navigate like talking to their partner about sexual trauma experiences or yeah, I've done a lot of different work in in sexual health. So really, I love that we're going to talk a lot about sexual desire today because that's my sort of main area. But certainly, if there are other things that come up related to sexual health generally, I'm happy to to chat about those too. Yeah, no, that sounds great. That sounds great. Yeah. On your website, there's a bunch of your research that is listed. And there's one called the You Plus Your Desire Study. You want to talk a little bit about what that is? Yeah. So that is one of our studies that we've just finished data collection for where we were investigating how do people think about their own sexual desire and apply that to their relationships essentially, right? Like us as scientists, we think about desire in a really clear way. We have clear definitions of it. Whereas the general public and the people that we see like in therapy, for example, they may not have as clear of an indication of what sexual desire looks like. So for example, like people might come in to see me and they'll say, I don't have any sexual desire for my partner or my desire is completely gone. But really, they're relying on this idea of desire being spontaneous, which is something that we feel early on in relationships. So I'm sure many people are familiar with that like feeling in your stomach of like, oh my gosh, like I just want to rip that person's clothes off. (laughs) Um, You know, that like, come take me now sort of feeling. That's what we refer to as spontaneous desire. And then there's another type of desire that is more characteristic in longer term relationships. And that type of desire is called responsive desire. And with that, it's more of like, something happens that maybe you don't have that like feeling about your partner because that like, you know, spontaneous rip my clothes off kind of feeling because there's so much familiarity there with that partner, right? So you may have that familiarity and therefore those feelings of like passion don't feel as common. However, maybe you go to a party with your partner and you see them across the room and they're like making two other people laugh. And that sparks something in you to where you're like, oh, (laughs) I remember that feeling. Like That's something that is very attractive about my partner. It makes them seem like someone who you're like less sort of enmeshed with, if that makes sense. So that can be one way that desire can show itself. So we learn from people's experiences in that, that it can be really helpful, for example, for couples to do something that maybe they're not always used to doing to kind of bring about that feeling of novelty and that feeling of excitement. That doesn't have to be something sexual. It can be something entirely non-sexual, like learning a new sport together or going to a new place or you know, having that autonomy be shown from across a room, like I just mentioned. So that's, that study was really looking at examining sexual desire on a deeper level. And I think the advertisement that you might have seen was the one specific to women. So we were looking specifically at like lesbian, bisexual, and straight women to see what are sort of the overlaps and what are the differences between women's sexual desire. Got it. Got it. Okay. So you said spontaneous desire and then responsive desire? Yeah. Was there anything else after that? Or are those kind of like the two types? Those are the two main types of desire. Yeah. Because desire is also separate from arousal. 
we're really getting into the woods here, but <laughs> um, desire is really separate from arousal. So like arousal is that physiological response. And something that we know that is sort of a bit of a sex difference here between uh, men and women is that arousal tends to be more consistent between arousal and desire for men. Like they may, and one of the reasons for that is that like your arousal response, meaning when you might get an erection, is external to your body, right? Whereas in women, it's not. And that's a real difference in experience because it's much easier for you to kind of notice when that arousal hits. And so arousal and desire can be harder to untangle in those scenarios than someone who maybe doesn't have that sort of genital response immediately. Whoa, that's interesting. (laughs) I never thought about it like that. So are you saying that a a woman might have a harder time understanding if she's aroused? Well, you wouldn't want to necessarily use like... I mean, first of all, we should never be using people's genital response as an entire indicator of whether they're aroused or feeling desire because there's not always that arousal response. Like a great example of this is when women are experiencing sexual assault, they will also often have a lubrication response, but that's because the body is protecting itself from pain in the context of that fight or flight response system of your nervous system reacting. And so that's not an indication that someone is aroused and it should never be taken as such. Instead, we should be using all of these pieces as an indicator of how aroused we might be or how much we desire any given sexual situation. Cool, cool. Okay, so let's dive a little bit into the spontaneous desire. I'm curious about this. When I hear this, this kind of reminds me of honeymoon period. Do you Mm. know what I mean by honeymoon period? Yeah, and it should remind you of that because it's very characteristic of that. Okay, okay. So do you have any understanding or something you can help us understand when it comes to this honeymoon period, right? So you meet a girl for the first time, you have all these crazy emotions, lust, love, whatever you call it, and it only lasts for so long. Do you understand about why it only lasts so long? And why that's something that is not forever. Although in this weird way, it tricks your brain. You feel like it's going to be forever. You feel like you're always going to feel this way. But of course, you don't. What's going on here? Yeah. I mean, that's a chemical response in in your brain to this person who feels good, right? When we feel good, whether it's through meeting someone amazing or through drug use or through you know, there's a whole bunch of different ways in which we can make ourselves feel really good. And falling in love is definitely one of those. One of the reasons that it doesn't necessarily last is because... So that's considered what we call the passionate love stage. So there's passionate love and companionate love. And passionate love typically turns to companionate love in around two years plus or minus six months. So it's sort of that phase where the passion feels like it's no longer there. There's like quite a familiarity. There's a routine. There's maybe monotony setting in. And that's because that passionate love is shifting to companionate love. And companionate love is really important and is wonderful. But couples need to learn how to bring the passion into the companionate stage of their relationship. So that's that's part of that spontaneous desire fading is, is that we don't have those same chemicals at play 
going on at this at that time in the relationship as things become more familiar and as things become more secure which is interesting right because we want that security right we we want to feel like we can rely on someone and we want to feel like they like we can trust someone and we feel safe with them but at the same time those exact characteristics can be the ones that make us feel like not as excited or not as passionate for someone, right? Right. You don't have that those highs and lows. Exactly. Yeah. And so that can be really hard to adjust to in the context of a longer-term relationship, especially when you're like shifting to there in the earlier, earlier times. This kind of reminds me of a study that I heard about in this... I think the book was called The Happiness Experiment, I believe. In this book, they talk about this study that was done where they showed some data where if there was ever super fiery, intense emotions in the beginning of a relationship, that that relationship had a more of an expiration, a faster expiration date. Have you heard of anything like this? So, you know, relationships that start really hot and heavy, so intense, so fiery in the beginning. Of course, I know it's like that for most relationships, but the ones that are on a whole different level. And then this idea that they are the ones, those are the relationships that don't last. Have you heard of anything like this? So what can sometimes happen, and I think what you're referring to here in the study that you're referring to is we can be distracted by those feelings if they're too intense, right? And so we might have what we call like rose-colored glasses and not see red flags that we should be seeing. If we're too wrapped up in this feeling of excitement and this feeling of like this new person and the passion. If we get really wrapped up in that passion, we can end up putting blinders on that make us blind to those red flags that we should be paying attention to. And that maybe if we were a little bit more even keeled around it all, then we'd be able to pay attention to those. So I think there's a lot of contextual factors that go into this that that study didn't account for. And that like, I think we can't always account for in one single study. But we do know that if you ignore those red flags early on, and if there's a lot of that passion, then you can end up maybe not paying as much attention to some of the longer-term compatibility factors that are really important for the success of a long-term relationship. Yep. I'm guilty of that. I've been there. Have you been there before? Where <laughs> yeah. you, you were just so in the love chemicals that you didn't pay attention to maybe oh, this guy maybe doesn't or woman. I'm not sure what your sexuality <laughs> is, but that person just wasn't a good fit. Right. Yeah. No, for sure. I've definitely been there. <laughs> yeah. It's tough. That's why I try to tell guys all the time is that when you're dating, you got to have a set of three non-negotiables to be looking for. So your eye is on the prize here, right? You're not just getting caught up in the emotions, but you're trying to figure out, is this woman that you're dating going to be a good match for you? It's funny though, even with that, it's still so hard because our brains are just so powerful when it comes to these, these love chemicals and these emotions, right? Yeah, definitely. It can take over. So tell us more about this study. So when you were doing this study, what were some other things that you found from it? Um, oh, what are some of the papers that have come out of that? Let me think. So I guess one really interesting 
piece of this that we've really enjoyed looking at is related to desire discrepancy. And so um, I think in early relationships, people, you know, often have a similar level of sexual desire to their partner, right? Like you both want sex a lot. (laughs) And then maybe once the relationship gets a little bit more settled in, then you begin to see that one of you might want sex a little bit more than the other. And in this, in the context of this study, we were looking at mixed sex couples. So they didn't all identify as heterosexual, but they were in a relationship with someone of the opposite sex. And what we found in this study was that like men and women are equally likely to be the member of the couple with lower desire relative to their partner. So we make a lot of like cultural assumptions around men's desire being so much higher than women's. And we also make a lot of assumptions around like men should always be ready and willing to have sex and women should always be the gatekeepers. And we just like, there's like a lot of these cultural assumptions. And our study and also others have looked at this too and have replicated this, really dug into that and found that no, actually, in the context of these longer-term relationships... And even the relationships that were only together for about six months, we're seeing that desire is actually, you're just as likely to be the lower desire partner or the higher desire partner, regardless of your gender identity. And so I think that that's really an interesting finding that kind of goes against some of those stereotypes that we have. Yeah, I think that there is, you can call it a stereotype or just, I don't know, maybe this is a stereotype. I'm just going to define it right now. But just general information I think that men have about women that is so false when it comes to sex. I think that we are raised as men thinking, and maybe this is going to change now, hopefully, that women are the gatekeepers. And because they are, that they don't really enjoy sex. I think that deep down inside a lot of men don't really understand that women do enjoy sex. They think that it's something that needs to be somehow traded in some yeah. capacity or like convinced. You know, it's like, I think they, they think that, yeah, okay, women like sex, right? It's like, oh, they have orgasms and they whatever. But, but really, you know, a lot of the men's actions that they take don't center around the idea of, no, women really like to enjoy sex. This is not something where you have to you know, convince them because it's something that they don't actually like to do. Right. Yeah. It's like this exchange model of there being a need for like, if you do this, then I'll give you sex. And we see that trope played out in sitcoms all the time. We see it played out. Yeah. I mean, I just think that women's sex for the sake of sexual pleasure, like with sexual pleasure being the reason that one might engage in sex is seems like such a novel idea. And I hope that I hope you're right that the next generation kind of shifts this to see that women's sexual pleasure is very enjoyable and like sex can be really fun. And there are all of these amazing things about sex that women really value too. So I hope that I hope that does change and I think you're you're spot on with that. I think also men think this because you know they are ones that are a little bit more willing to have sex faster where women are not. Do you have anything to say about that or any studies you've done or read about that idea where why is it that most men can you know like there, there's been funny not that this is anything of an actual scientific experiment. But it does play some truths here. I've seen some YouTube videos where 
a cute girl will go and ask like a hundred guys, like, hey, you want to come back to my place? Like, let's get freaky. And most of the guys say, yeah, let's go. And then a guy will do that. And a hundred percent of the women are like, no. So why is that happening? I've seen that as well. Um, Why do you think that might be? Why do I think that might be? I think that women... For a woman, safety is one of the yeah, biggest safety, things. Yeah, safety, hundred percent. And safety on all levels: physical mm-hmm. safety and emotional safety. Yeah, and think right? about the consequences of sex with a stranger for a woman compared to a man, especially if you're in a state where you don't have access to birth control or abortion. The consequences are a lot steeper for a woman, not like the actual physical consequences. Additionally, there's the emotional consequences of being ridiculed or being judged in some way for for engaging in casual sex freely, whereas men tend to be sort of rewarded for that action. Yeah. It's so crazy. Yeah. It's so crazy that that it came to be like that. It's so cool if you're a dude and you've slept with a hundred girls and you see a woman who's slept with a hundred guys and she's a slut and she's gross, right? So it's like interesting comparison there. Right. And I think that that's not an inherent gender or sex difference, right? I think that that's totally socially constructed to where we have made these really stringent rules on what like woman is supposed to be like, or especially what a girl is supposed to be like. Like when you're an adolescent, what are you supposed to act like when it comes to your sex and sexuality? We don't even go near adolescent women's, adolescent girls' sexuality and it's certainly not celebrated the way that it should be for healthy sexual development to take place. So, you know, you, you even just think about, I don't know if you think back to like high school, for example, I can remember like guys always talking about masturbating, whereas I can very vividly remember one girl talking about masturbating and she was ridiculed by me as well. Like I feel awful about it now, but I can remember her just being like made fun of for a really long like I think she had that reputation for the entire time we were in high school. And I, I just really regret not having said something. And like, I mean, I didn't know better at that time, but it's just such a very clear example of the ways in which boys and girls are treated totally differently when it comes to sex and sexuality growing up. So I hope that that's changing. Yeah. But we yeah, have a lot it, of work to do. Yeah. It's interesting. And you, now you're an adult and you look back and you go, that was so ridiculous. Yeah. Right. Like, well, like she was wild. masturbating. So were the rest of us. Like, right. And, and now, like, man, they hear that and they're like turned on by that. You know, no right. man would be like, ew, she's masturbating. They'd be like, that's hot. You know, like, right. Yeah. Just it's honest. just so crazy. Yeah. It's awful. It's really awful. So let's talk more about the, these ideas of why women won't have sex as fast as a man. There's another thing too is is women can get actually hurt by a man, like raped or beaten, right? So that's like another reason why she might not want to just all of a sudden fast have sex with a guy because she can actually get physically hurt, not just in the physical sense of, oh, she can get pregnant, but also there's danger. Like a man can be dangerous to her. Definitely, yeah. Any thoughts yeah, on that? It's a real, real problem. And, um, you know, I think that, that we can't minimize that in, in the casual sex research that we do of looking into why even, even enjoyment of casual sex, right? Like we do see that men tend to enjoy, the research shows that men tend to enjoy casual sex more than women, but that 
finding cannot be taken at face value. It has to be taken in the context within which that's happening, which is a context where, you know, intimate partner violence or violence against women by men is a top killer in our country. And so it like literally (laughs) kills people. So there's really a true danger there. Yeah. And I can see a guy being like, I don't get it. I'm not going to hurt a girl. I'm not going to kill a girl. I'm not going to rape a girl. But she doesn't know that. And that's the whole thing. She doesn't know that. She doesn't know that. And and if she's ever... By the way, if she's even had a past experience with that, her guard is going to be up even more. I'm curious. Yeah, and one in three women have, right? So I think like one in every three women that you go on a date with has experienced some type of sexual violence in some way. And even more with harassment, I would say like 75% of women have experienced harassment, if not 100%. And so I think that there's there's a real... And obviously there's a range in the in the severity of that harassment that's taken place. But I just think that that's something that definitely needs to be considered and when we think about why women make the decisions they do sexually. Do you have any advice that you could give to guys that you, know, knowing all of the studies that you've done, you're also a woman yourself. Uh, are you heterosexual or? I'm bisexual. You're bisexual. Okay. Mm-hmm. When did you discover that? I'm curious. Um. So, I mean, I feel like if our society were different, everyone would be bisexual. <laughs> so, even men. Uh, yeah, for sure. I think that like all oh, of us have sexuality that's on a spectrum. But I didn't start like openly identifying as bisexual until I was actually in a relationship with a woman, which I think that I think a lot of bisexual folks feel that way, in part because we're like bisexuality is such an interesting identity in that you receive sort of um, discrimination from both the gay community and the straight community because it's like you're not gay enough, but you're also not straight enough. I've heard this before. Yeah. So like you're in this in-between. And so I always felt like I couldn't identify as bisexual until I was in a long-term relationship with someone who was also a woman. And so that's when I started sort of like really claiming that identity. But are you in a relationship now? I've always sort of known that women are attractive and so are men. Okay. Yeah. Are you in a relationship right now with anyone? No, I'm not. Okay. So how does a bisexual... Are you, I know it's on a spectrum. So is it like you can say, oh, I'm a little bit attracted to women and a lot to men, or you know that you're equally attracted to both and your arousal is the same with both? Like, How does that work? Yeah. I think everyone has a different sort of balance between those, right? And just because... like, So for me, for example, I'm mostly attracted to men, but there have been notable women that I've been very attracted to. And so like meaning like I know exactly what I what it is that I'm attracted to in those women. And so um I think that all bisexual people probably go through different iterations of that and also our sexuality is very fluid too. So that could change over time. Like maybe right now I happen to be more attracted to men and maybe that has some sort of an evolutionary piece to it related to me being of reproductive age. I don't know, but that's possible. I'm not going to like rule that out. But I think that we also have different things that we're attracted to too, right? Like we have our emotional attraction, romantic attraction, and then like maybe physical or sexual attraction. And on all of those different levels, someone might be have like different components, sort of like different 
on a scale of one to 10 with one being attract or well, we can look at the Kinsey scale, which is a scale. It's a seven point scale. We can look at that and see where we fall on that Kinsey scale, which rates people from exclusively heterosexual to exclusively gay or lesbian. And then the middle point is bisexual. And so you could rate yourself on each of those on like romantic, emotional, and sexual attraction at any given point in time in your life. And it could change over the course of time. That's so interesting. I mean, I know that if I see a man, I can... And maybe maybe most guys are like this, but I don't know. Maybe they don't admit it. I can tell if a man is attractive or not attractive. Like I can see a guy and go, oh yeah, he's an attractive man or he's not so attractive physically speaking. But when I see a man you know, with like a shirt off and maybe I think that he's an attractive man, it does not give me the same physiological response as when I see a woman with her shirt off. Like big difference there. Yeah. And maybe one day you would come across a man who did take his shirt off and was an attractive man. But then you also got to know something else about him as a person that was really appealing to you. So I think that's where it becomes like way more complex than... like I could never get into a relationship with someone simply because I find them physically attractive. Like There would just have to be so many... There's so many other factors that are so important to my attraction to somebody. So I think the best way to put it is like I'm attracted to the person rather than something specific about their gender. Sure. Now, okay, you said something a minute ago, different types of attraction. Can you list those again? Yeah. So there's like, what are you attracted to emotionally in terms of emotional connection, romantic in terms of like romantic relationship, and then sexual. Okay. What's the difference between emotional and romantic? So emotional, like, like close, really close friendships, for example. Like you would have an emotional connection with that person, right? You feel very emotionally connected to them. You feel like they have a high level of emotional intelligence that maybe matches your own. That's our emotional, our emotional attraction piece. That's different from romantic in that maybe you have, like I can think of many girlfriends that I have, like friends, not <laughs> friends. They're just my friends. And I have a super strong emotional attachment to them. I'm very attracted to them emotionally, but I could never be in a romantic relationship with them. Like there's just something else about it that does not feel romantic to me at all. It's a very platonic friendship. But okay. we still have that really high level of emotional connectivity. Okay, got it. Okay, so then romantic. Mm-hmm. Let's dive into that one a little bit. Yeah, and then so the romantic piece would be like, you really want to get, you want to like be in a relationship with them. Like you want to be in a romantic relationship with them. You feel like you could fall in love with them. Um, they have the qualities that you're looking for in like a long-term partner. Now, I, that's very long-term monogamous relationship sort of speak there because I think we can also be in love with multiple people at one time. Many people who are in like polyamorous relationships, for example, end up being in long-term romantic relationships with more than one person at a time. And that functions really well for some people. So I don't want to say that romantic relationship is just with one person. It can or emotional or sexual. But if we're generalizing here to like the majority of people, then it's that person that you could like spend your life with in a romantic way, right? Do you think you could be um, uh, romantically attracted, physically attracted, and not emotionally? 
Yeah, it's possible. Um, I yeah, I'm trying to like, figure that out in my sure. head. Like, what and does I think that look there are, like? I think there's lots of long-term relationships out there that are exactly that, right? Like, unfortunately, and I think that they're maybe just not entirely satisfied. Yeah, interesting. If I had to categorize it, because I'm just learning this now for the first time, it's like emotional seems like friendship. Like that's the friendship portion. Mm -hmm. Romantic is you see them more as a sexual partner. But then see that here's another interesting thing. Can you be emotionally and I think I just answered my question, but I'll continue. Um, can you be emotionally <laughs> attracted and romantically attracted, but not physically attracted? And and I think the answer is yes. I believe I've been in a relationship like that before. It didn't, yeah, didn't last sure. that long. But what are your thoughts on that? Yeah, definitely. Yeah. I think you can have any combination of any any three of those domains of of attraction and and still end up in a, in a relationship with that person. And maybe that ends up meaning that you get some of your needs met elsewhere, right? Like many people may not have a super strong emotional connection with their spouse, but they get that emotion, those emotional needs met from really close friendships. And that's okay. Like we can't expect one partner, especially if you're plan if you want to be in a long-term monogamous relationship, like you can't expect your partner to meet all of your needs. Yeah. Throughout your whole life. You have to have other people to meet some of those needs and um other people in your life to form really meaningful relationships with as well. Yeah. Interesting. Yeah. I, I always broke it down two different things, romantic and physical. I never really thought about that third aspect. I always kind of threw in in my head, emotional is part of the romantic. But as you're separating these, I can now see how each of them play their own specific role in attraction, mm -hmm. which is mm -hmm. super interesting. Uh, real quick, I just want to say to anyone listening, the book I was referring to is not called The Happiness Experiment. It's called The Happiness Hypothesis by Jonathan Haidt. If anyone wants to check that out, that's where I found that one study that talked about the really fiery uh, relationships. And now, Kristen, I was going to say this to you before, and then we got sidetracked because we were talking about your sexuality. <laughs> uh, but I was asking you, from everything that you've studied and your own personal experiences, and the fact that you're a woman, do you have any thought or advice that you would give a guy in terms of you know, how to make a woman feel safe? Because I mean, we were talking about that, right? It's like women take more time than a man to feel that kind of quick sexual attraction where a man can do it a lot faster than a woman. Do you know what a, a man can do, or have there ever been any studies done on this that shows like what makes a woman feel safe and and be able to get to a place where she can feel safe to be aroused by this person and then have sex with them? Yeah, um, you know, I, it's really a feeling, right? So building a rapport with somebody is really important. Just like as a therapist, you know, I have to build rapport with my clients, and I have to. In fact, that we call that therapeutic alliance. And that therapeutic alliance is one of the best predictors of whether therapy is going to be successful or not. Same thing with a relationship. Like You need to spend the time genuinely getting to know somebody. I think that there's a real... Um, especially in this sort of fast-paced dating world that we're in where people are swiping and they're engaging in you know, maybe going on a lot of dates. Well, not right now with pandemic, but <laughs> in non-pandemic times, I, I think that we get into maybe a habit of 
sort of like, yeah, have you ever been in a conversation with someone where you feel like they're thinking about the next thing to say before you've even finished what you're saying? Where you're talking to them and they're, you can tell that they're thinking of the next thing to say? Yeah, where they're yeah. not really like fully listening, right? In those scenarios, it really feels like somebody's not trying to get to know you. They're not like wanting to see you. And I think that genuinely being mindful and being there and being present is a crucial component to feeling seen. And feeling seen is a crucial component to trust. I like that. Yeah. And so I just think... And in our research that we've done... So another study that I loved doing was this study of women who had been in healthy sexual relationships, but they had previously experienced sexual trauma. And we talked to them about their current relationship and how they got to this place of being in a really healthy relationship. And across the board, their experience of sexual pleasure in particular really relied upon a word that you said quite a few times recently in our conversation of safety. That that safety piece is like so crucial for their ability to experience pleasure. And I think that that's across the board true when it comes to sex and sexuality. And I think it's true for men as well. Like, if you don't feel like you can be yourself in a sexual situation, that you can be at ease, that you can feel comfortable, it can be really hard to do to like maintain arousal, for example. Or if you like don't feel like everyone is present and wants to be there, that's really not that pleasurable. So focusing in on genuinely being there and like really feeling present in the moment and genuinely wanting to get to know that person for who they are can go a really long way in in like building that base of trust. I like that. Yeah, you know what? That just made me think I should do a video or I should do a podcast episode about questions that help build rapport or topics that help build rapport with someone so guys can understand well, what does that look like? What does that mean? How do you get to a point where you actually feel that connection with someone. I think guys get kind of caught up in their head of what to say next that they don't know what to say next or they don't understand it. And so I think breaking that down could be helpful for guys. Just understanding right. what does that look like and how how do people build rapport? I think it's funny because that you everyone does it, right? It's like most people do it. You do it. You've done it with friends. You've done it with teachers. You've done it with people all your life. You just might not have recognized how it's happening. Mm-hmm. And so often, again, this comes back to like the socialization of boys when they're young. They're not really taught as often to communicate their needs and wants and um, feelings the way that that women might be, that girls might be. And so I think it's really sometimes adult men have to relearn how to engage in like empathetic conversations or how to be in touch with their emotions they have to like relearn that and that that's a shame i wish that you know our culture were more accepting of that along the way but yeah no totally and and just like you said earlier being present in the interaction and not just sitting there and waiting for your turn to speak but really hearing the person and totally. being there and that person will feel that yeah, because then you're going to get at like a genuine connection, right? And you're not going to have this like false sense of, okay, well, our interests match up on this, this, and this. So 
I guess that's good. <laughs> like, no, it, if you actually pay attention and you actually engage and you really like genuinely want to get to know the person, they're going to sense that too. And that's going to create the opportunity for like that spark to happen, which that spark is, I think, harder and harder to come by in the context of like the online dating world of like swiping and feeling like there are a billion options out there. Yep, exactly. Very cool. Dr. Kristen Mark, it was fun talking to you. I feel like there's so much more that we could chat about because you seem to be a wealth of knowledge, not only from our conversation, but all these different studies that you're doing. And I feel like we just scratched the surface of all the things you know. So definitely be fun to have you back on the podcast and talk about another aspect of your research or the things that you found and and talk to you about that. But I just want to thank you for coming on and and doing this and and chatting and just, you know, telling us some of the things that you've learned on your personal level, but also in the studies that you've done. So thank you. Yeah. Thanks for having me. It was a great conversation. Cool. If guys want to learn more about what you're doing, I don't know if you have an Instagram or if you have if you want to talk about your website or anything like that, anything else that uh, you have that maybe guys would want to check more out. Yeah, they can find me on my website. And I think everything else is linked on there. My website is just uh, kristenmark.com. K-R-I-S-T-E-N-M-A-R-K. Cool. All right. We'll put that in the show notes. Thank you, Kristen. Appreciate it. Thanks a lot.